Welcome to Network Capital, uh, Manjuriji. It's a really a pleasure to host you. One, for your distinguished career. Second, for uh, your book, which has inspired uh, millennials like myself in India and around the world. And third, because of serendipity. I had uh, no idea that dots connect in such a beautiful way. The other day, I noticed one of my mentors, Pramath, who I've known for over a decade, uh, post about his sister. And... Uh, Know what, the, what an inspiring journey she's had. And I just looked up my calendar and realized it was you. And it's really <laughs> such small a delight. Small world. And it's just mysterious the way dots connect. Um, Pramit has influenced many of us uh, uh, during the fellowship and after. And it's really a pleasure to see um, how we can explore your career and unpack bit by bit how you've built your category of one. So it's very interesting. It's because uh, of Pramat that I finally wrote this book. I was very, very hesitant to write anything at all because uh, it was so many years had passed by and I thought my story, who would be interested in a story like mine? So Pramat is actually my kid brother, as you know, 14 years younger than me. <clears throat> but he was, he never left me sort of. 2010 onwards, when I retired, he went after me saying that you must write the book, you must write the book. So then it's really happened. And I think it's only because of him and his mentoring to me that I could write this book. And I'm so glad that it is a small world because I had heard your uh, mother getting the Hindi Sahitya Academy Award. And uh, I had told Pramath at that time itself that, look, this person is from Bihar and we should uh, do an interview of hers on the, on the Naidhara. And I had heard that interview of hers. And I find that uh, she is so much more versatile writing uh, in Hindi and she's writing in English. She's writing criticism. She's writing uh, poetry, she's writing prose, everything. But one significant thing I must connect is that she says in her interview that it was her brother who uh, encouraged the parents to send her to JNU to study. Otherwise, she was like me in a very sheltered atmosphere, a little different than me, but a very sheltered atmosphere in Delhi, where she in Patna, where she was studying. And it was her brother who encourage the parents that no you must send her out and that's how I think her career also took off so I find a connect between her brother and my brother and what we have been able to come to today so thank you I um, if you would like we can uh, start our interview whatever questions you would like to start yeah. it's nice was... to start on this happy note <laughs> <laughs> it is a happy note indeed and um, you know, mom um, has inspired my writing as well. Interestingly, my second book just came out last week. Uh, it's called The Passion Economy and the Side Hustle Revolution. Okay. And I try and leave economics and the sociology of the internet with a bit of literature and poetry. So the literature and poetry side definitely comes So just from. like her, you're <laughs> <merging. laughs> um, And Pramath again was kind enough to write a blurb for the book. Um, okay. So yeah. Let's dive into it on okay. this happy note. 
So Manjuriji, tell us a bit about uh, uh, why you wrote this book. So first of all is that uh, the first reason why I wrote the book was the insistence by, by insistent by my uh, brother and my family. My boys also, my two boys, they also wanted me that they insisted that I should uh, write and record and they kept saying that why do you want why do you want to hide everything you've done so much you've achieved so much so that was the reason and then i saw that when i started my career there were hardly any role models to follow there was actually nobody as i have said that i was the fifth to join the police service the fifth in the amongst a group of girls so we had the first girl was Kiran Bedi in 1972 and every year had we had one lady joining the IPS it was only 1976 that six of us reported to the police academy mm -hmm. and uh, then we set a tone for things to be uh, done and followed and each one who went to their state was the first one and we did, I think most of us had a tough time getting accepted, moving forward, uh, uh, establishing, establishing a, a, a path for others to come. So I thought, why not let me write and record. And now that I have written the book, you would be surprised to learn that I was surprised to learn also that a girl whom I've never met, she's also an IPS officer, very junior to me. She wrote that, uh, ma'am, I've read your book with so much of uh, interest and I must tell you that for your sacrifices, the batches which came in the beginning, the sacrifices they made, because of that today, sir has been dropped and we are now only called madam. So I think that must have uh, been, that is a very big achievement and uh, I think that that was a motivating factor to write something for the new generation of lady IPS officers who are coming and also not only in the IPS today, women are coming into all other uh, branches of the police, like the paramilitary forces, the BSF, the CRPF, the ITBP. ITBP, which is, that is the Indo-Tibetan border force, is starts the deployment 10,000 above sea level. So they go higher and higher. So there also the women are getting deployed. So there is no service today which doesn't have women and it has women in all ranks, right from the IPS, which is a central uh, uh, deputation from us for the state, but you have officers joining just the BSF, just the ITBP, just the CRPF and other paramilitary forces. And similarly, the subordinate ranks, there are sub-inspectors, constables, every rank is now joining and women have become so aspirational that I felt that my book would really help them to understand what exactly is required from women. Talk to me about the title of your book. Uh, my brother gave the title for this book. <laughs> he says that uh, he was so much younger than me and he says that uh, it used to ring in his ears, this word, Madam Sir, he had never heard it before. So um, uh, it rings in the, it, it rang in his ears and he says that this is the name I would like to give your book because I was thinking, uh, what is it that uh, we should uh, decide? And uh, why did they call me Madam Sir is that when I joined in the Bihar police in this entire secretariat, 
that is the secretariat is the center of uh, the bureaucracy in Bihar in Patna secretariat. In that huge uh, building, I perhaps was the only woman in a uniform and they were not at, used to addressing me uh, as, uh, um, as madam because there was no madam. So on their lips, there was only one word, sir. But then they felt that this is not right to call me, sir. So they automatically started calling me, madam, sir. And uh, that is what stuck to me. And I also never challenged them as to why are you calling me, madam, sir? It is okay. I also got, went along because I did not know anything better. That was the way they addressed me. And that is the way it went on. Till now, as I said, that somebody is writing to me and saying that, so has been dropped. I hope that's true. Well, we all hope so too. Um, on Network Capital, we try and explore careers and career transitions. So you've talked about in the book about your childhood and how it was remarkably different from the career you end up uh, having. Do you want to tell us a bit about what a day in your life looked, up, looked like when you were growing up? So I was growing up in Patna. I was left mostly with my grandparents. I think my parents were very busy in the uh, in the village. We had a little, uh, uh, we had a small uh, setup there, and they were constantly going there. So, my I and my sisters were very often left with my grandparents, who were sticklers for discipline. So uh, they were very particular that we should be brought in a very uh, particular way in the sense as a girl, what is it that we must have? We must be properly disciplined, we must study hard. And uh, there were no, uh, uh, there were no thoughts given to uh, say, uh, whether we should be decision makers, or we will have a career, or how should we plan a career, the entire focus was that we should be brought up in a very disciplined way, we should study very hard. And we should not have any extraneous influences. So that is a very, very protected life I led. Even when my parents came back to Patna and we started staying as a family of three sisters and one brother, it continued more or less like that. The only aim at that time was of my parents was to, was to groom me in such a way that I would find a good husband. <laughs> so it was teaching me every kind of a skill which a housewife should have. I would taught to stitch, to embroider, to cook, to uh, paint, do batik. They also tried teaching us music and dance, but sort of that was also with the aim of uh, telling the in-laws or whoever who they would be that, oh, my daughter is very talented, but not really that I would pursue that as a career like people are doing now. So from a very, very sheltered background, I was uh, hurried into a marriage at a very young age of say 19 or something. I was still in BA part one when my marriage took place and I did not even know uh, what my parents were planning for me. So it just happened. And uh, people ask me that, why is it that you didn't question anything? Or why was it like this, that you just walked into a situation? I said, we were not brought up to question the parents. Whatever the parents did, they said, like, I wanted to go and study in Delhi. My admission was done in Lady Urban School. I've written all this in the book. Yeah. But the day I was to go, my father told my grandmother that 
this will be like sending her off in a bidai in a marriage i can't send her there was a big uh, scene in the house when i was asked not to go but i did not rebel i said okay this is my father's decision i accepted to top it all he insisted that i must study in a girls uh, college so i went to study in patna women's college you must be knowing about that i don't know whether your mother also studied there but that is where i studied and then uh, then this marriage did not work out i must say that my at that point of time my father did take a bold decision that uh, no she i will not go back but when he took that decision he still wanted me to be in patna under his shelter and to be looked after there but by then it had dawned on me that look i'm not going to be living in this world of gloom and doom i must chart a career for myself and i enrolled for the rao mr rao's study circle which was at that time the best coaching place for the ias so many people went there so i went there and i enrolled myself in delhi university to do my ma so that was my early career and you know just going along with whatever my parents said and then taking a decision then uh, when i qualified for the ips that was also a big shock to my parents they did not want me to go for the ips they felt yeah, why should i send her for a police job she has been so delicately brought up and let me tell you that uh, till i went to the police academy i had never done any pt or played any games or done anything which was not supposed to be done by only women so i would only be able to play cards or maybe some carrom or these kind of games badminton was the most i would have done in physical so then i went to the police academy my father of course said that uh, you just go see and come back and he there was a big emotional scene when i was going but i did go and uh, join the police force and i sent a telegram to my father because i had been only sent to go and see and come back and then in the telegram i wrote six girls so that was the first batch uh which saw six girls joining the police academy so then uh, my father of course uh, felt a little relieved and then i had decided i was not going to go back and if uh, others can do it so can i and in my batch there was a girl with two daughter two children and i said if she can do it surely i can do it also and i must tell you the police training is the toughest training i think in the world i would say unless you are training for the navy seals or some such thing like that but in those days it was very very tough from us. would you like me to talk about my police training i would i would i would love that uh, after i ask you a couple of questions and please yes. not answer anything that you're uncomfortable with tell us yeah. about your relationship with your father I did not get that question. Uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, your father and your relationship with him? Uh my father was was a very controlling uh, person but he said that uh, all the money which he was earning he was earning for the honor of his family and his children. So this is what he strongly believed in and he felt that uh, if uh, he can do anything for us to have a good education and a good uh, marriage it would be a big achievement for him he was a very very hard working person 
he was not very much involved with our day-to-day -day, uh, activities. It was my mother who would be going to college and to school or to all our functions. If there was anything happening in the school, it was my mother. She would sit down often and get us to do our homework, etc. My father was so busy with all his... Uh, a social and political work and managing his own business that he was really not concerned what we were doing. And there was a joke in the family that if anybody asked my father in which class is your daughter studying, he would always say that I'm studying in class six. And everybody would laugh at it that look, she's gone to college, but my father would keep talking that um, I was uh, in class six. But when the hard decision came, my father insisted that no, I should stay back. At that time, I was not keen to stay back. I rebelled. I said, no, I have to work out this marriage. I have sisters. My sisters have to get married. But my father put his foot down and he said that nothing doing this. He understood that this is not going anywhere because the demands were so many. One after the other, the demands would come. And I think he saw what none of us saw. And then he did not make a secret of this whole thing. He said that he wrote to all the relatives and said that Manjri has come back and we've decided to keep her and educate her. And uh, this is what it is uh, going to be. So there was no talk behind the scenes of people wondering what had happened. So from day one, when I came back, it was known to everybody that I was going to stay at home. Can I narrate a small story for it'll be interesting for people to hear this would love to. I've actually met your mom, so I will ask you a question after this about her as well. Okay, okay. Well. So this is a very interesting story. When I was still studying, I was in only class uh, BA part one. You know, BA was uh, Bachelor of Arts was only for three years. When I was studying still in BA part one, I had still not been married, etc. There was a young uh, girl, a very beautiful girl whom we all admired and she was in the final year. Uh, she was to, uh, she got married before, you know, in, in Bihar, people would get married while they were still studying. So this girl also got uh, married before she could complete her BA. So one day the nuns told us that, oh, look at her, she's got married, but we are telling her to complete her BA exams. They are just two, three months ago, that uh, uh, two, three months ahead. And we are asking her that complete the exams. Why are you leaving it? She was also studying English honors like I was studying. So then the sister told us that, uh, look, uh, she's making a mistake. She's not taking the exams. And then the sister quoted to me, to us, that she says that she's so happy with the marriage and the family that she would never need her BA. The degree would not be required by her. And while I'm still studying and all this is happening with me, we heard about this girl. The marriage had totally failed. And uh, hers was a really bad case because the parents would keep on telling her that, no, you must go and stay with your in-laws. That is your future. In the course of this, uh, they would beat her up. Uh, they would burn her with cigarette stops and all. But she was continued to be sent back to the um, in-laws. And uh, now the interesting part comes after this. She was the daughter of an IPS officer, a very, very senior IPS officer who was the headed the Bihar police at one point of time. So when I joined the service, he would have retired. I never saw him, but because Patna was a very small uh, town and we knew each other, 
uh, I knew who he was and uh, he was a very, very respected and a tough cop kind of an image he had. So one day he called me and he said to me uh, very regretfully that uh, Manjri, I'm so glad you made your life and you took the decision which you took, but look at my daughter. Look at her, what happened. We could not uh, see her future. And uh, she has ended up with two children and I have to now look after all of them and there is no future for her. So this is a story which uh, I did not write in the book because I didn't want to write about this girl. Everybody knows her. But this I want to share that how uh, when you are asking my relationship with my father, if my father had probably not insisted, I was not in a mental condition to take that decision because I was not a decision maker at that time. Thank you very much for sharing. And your story also talks about the context in India and in Bihar in particular at the time. And um, things have come a long way, but in many ways things haven't, unfortunately. And that's why programs like Vedika exist. And I know you spoke there a few years back. Yes. And I wasn't in the room, but I did go through the transcript uh, to prepare for this interview. In this um, discussion, you briefly talked about your mom. I, I, I've met her once or, or twice and I've spoken to her on Facebook a few times. I, she struck me as a remarkable woman, a lot like my grandmother. Um, okay. We lost them both last year, unfortunately. I'm sorry for that. Was it to COVID? She actually fell down, my grandmother. And uh, after that, she just, compli one complication led to the other and she could not recover. Hmm. I wanted to ask about the ways in which your mom shaped your aspiration and your career. Uh, so my mother was a very uh, strong person, I think, because uh, she stood by the decisions of my father, but my mother was not a decision maker in the family. She went along with whatever my father decided, but fortunately there was no conflict between them as far as the upbringing of the children were concerned. She went along with my father, but she was a strong personality in the sense that uh, once my father had taken a decision she went along and made sure that everything was done according to whatever he had prescribed or desired. So she was a strong influence. Uh, she was the one who would, uh, you know, my, it did not matter to my father if we studied in a patshala or we went to a Hindi medium school or whatever. It was my mother who took us one day, all the three daughters one day to the St. Joseph convent and made sure that we were put for a convent education because that is what was valued at that time. Convent education was highly valued. And then she would make sure that we continued with her st studies. Uh, we were not distracted. We were not taken here and there. If they had to travel to the village, uh, we were left with my grandparents so that the education would not get disrupted. So my mother was uh, very, very strong and uh, really supportive. When things went wrong also, I think uh, my mother was also a very religious person. Uh, she went on fasting and then, you know, she would go to the Patna Hanuman Mandir and every day she would, uh, every Tuesday she would go and read the Sundar Kand and the Ramayan to ensure that her daughter competed or her life was this thing, was restored. And... Uh, even when I was taking the civil services exams, it was a very tough time for me. 
she would always be there to encourage me, whether I have eaten, whether my food has come, uh, what time am I going, have I slept in the night? So she went into those details. And later on in my life, when I joined the IPS and I was posted to so many places, my mother was a pillar of strength because she always came and helped out. You know, bringing up children and all were very difficult. I was often posted to, uh, I was often sent for foreign posting, foreign training or training inside the, uh, inside the country. And uh, I never shirked from going for training. Many people say that, oh, why are you going for training? You're now qualified for the IPS. But I do believe that uh, in a career, there is, uh, you don't stop learning. You keep on learning things and you have to be, up to date with everything that is happening in the country. And even if we come back with two learning points from a course or a program which you have attended, it's well worth the effort. So my mother would always help out. She would come and stay with us, persuade my father to come and stay and carry on the family. So that is the role my mother played in my life. And she passed away last year and we really miss her. I can imagine I'm really sorry to hear that. Must be very, very, very proud to see the book. I hope she got to read at least the manuscript or part of it. Uh, I don't think so. It was not ready. <laughs> I, I wish she could have. I will ask an open ended question. Uh, you can feel free to not answer, answer it the way you want. What does resentment mean to you? And have you ever felt that you resented uh, people close to you because you were denied opportunities or? perhaps not let to flower, or you've reconciled with it? It's an open-ended question. You can answer it the way you like. Uh, no, surprisingly, uh, I have this have, uh, in, inherent uh, strength to forgive and move ahead. I think so. Because I never felt bitter about whatever happened to me. Uh, when I when you asked me this question, I've never had a chance to answer a question like this. But my I have written in the book that uh, both my friends in college they would turn around and tell me because you know that time I was doing so many things. My case was going on. I was taking the civil services. I was appearing for my MA exams two years, and I was just pushed for time. They would tell me. I mean, and they were shocked, and they would say how is it that you don't have any bitterness and that you're going through with all this, any kind of uh, rancor? And that time I didn't think much of it, but later on I realized that yes, I did not feel bitter. Or even when uh, Mr. Uh, the, the IG, Mr. Rajeshar Lal, when I reported to him and he said that I'm going to ask for Kiran Bedi's uh, file and uh, you'll have to wait and then only will you get posted. I did feel bad about it. I did feel bad about it, but I didn't resent him. And then I say again in my book also that years later, he came to where I was posted and said that, oh, I'm so happy you've done so well. And I've come to congratulate you as if it was because of him that what I was. So I feel that uh, one, uh, if one is bitter in life about anything, that will not help. It will not help you to move ahead. It will drag you down. And uh, my uh, situation through which I went, and because I was not bitter, 
I could uh, plan my career. I could work with people. Yes, for uh, some six months, I went into a complete shell. I didn't want to meet anybody, but that was not because of bitterness. It was more because I felt, uh, how can I uh, face this situation that I have a broken uh, marriage? It was more because of that. And uh, bitterness uh, and resentment cannot uh, take you very far. So if you really want to have uh, a mature, uh, if you want to be a mature decision maker, if you want to think logically and you want to think uh, uh, correctly and move ahead in life, you have to forget this bitterness and resentment. And for this, if you have to do meditation or you have to do some pranayam or anything, if you have gone through a situation like this, there could be many incidents happening to women. Uh, they need to get over it and not let it rancor inside their minds. Thank you for sharing, Manjuti. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about uh, the day you got your civil service results. Uh, there was no Facebook, Instagram, etc., Twitter at that time. How did you find out that you'd, <laughs> you'd made it and uh, who did you call? Uh, the, my two friends, Bharti Pandey and uh, Radha Sharma, with whom I was in college, when we heard that the results have been put up in the UPSC, that is the first time. At eight o'clock in the night, we went to the UPSC. I'm sure you're a Delhi person. You've seen it's on Shah Jahan Road. And then it was pasted there and we saw our name, my name. And we jumped and jumped and jumped. It was in sheer darkness. There was nothing there. And it was just with a torchlight, we are seeing the names. And we saw this and we hugged each other and we were just very thrilled. And then uh, I rang up my parents and my uncle and all these people. But sadly that year I did not qualify. The final results didn't come out. And um, in the interview I had not qualified. So I had Again, I was taking the exams again. This time when the results came out, uh, I was in Patna, I was in my home. It was the rainy season. I was uh, sleeping blissfully. And uh, <laughs> this is a very uh, interesting thing to say that my grandmother, my nani with whom I spent so much time, she used to say that whenever the crow cries on, or is crowing on the boundary wall, there'll be some news. And that particular uh, day, uh, I remember so distinctly that from the morning, the, there was a crow crying, uh, cr crowing on the windowsill. And then it was uh, the rainy season, it, the crow was going on on the windowsill. And then I heard my father shouting from below that, get up, get up, get up, the results have come, you have made it, you have made it. And you know, there's that Indian nation uh, paper in Patna, I don't know whether you remember that, that paper was one of the oldest papers. So that in that paper, my name had come out and it was just very thrilling. And once uh, that happened, then the debate started whether I should go to the IPS or not, which I've already shared with you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. It's so interesting that it seems like he was the most proud person on the planet once, once he heard your results. And then there was a discussion about whether you should join or not. Yeah. It must be so many emotions. Um, going on in the house that time, I can only imagine. But uh, I'm sure it was a special day. 
a day that changed your life and that of many, many people in India. Yes, uh, I agree with you. So you joined the police services uh, and then suddenly you're thrown into extremely unfamiliar territory. You have uh, these physical training exercises, madam, sir, all of these things going on. And then eventually you start getting cases and problems that you have no clue how to deal with. Right? You are, nobody prepares you to deal with, say, what's going on in the world of Mr. Lalu Prasad Yadav. You got a chance yes. to negotiate that. Do you want to give our listeners a flavor of uh, what that means or what that meant for you? How did you prepare yourself to deal with uh, situations like this? Say the problem of... Okay. Uh, so the, the police training is the toughest training, as I've told you. And uh, life would start at six o'clock in the morning and I don't know what time it would end. And PT, parade, rifle drill, everything. I mean, you name it and we had to do it. And the physical part of the training was extremely tough for me. And the only reason I think that I could go through the whole thing was because I felt very uplifted. Mm. I never felt that uh, I should not do something. And uh, none of the girls in the academy were shammers. You know what I mean by shamas pretending, oh, I have a leg ache, I will not do, I will do this. Mm. Every day we would do our PT parade and that was very, uh, the staff was very encouraging because many women, we were told that were not joining the police because of the hard uh, physical training. Yeah. But here the director onwards, everybody was very keen that none of us leave. One of them left finally for the IAS because she qualified for it, but five of us stayed on. So that part was uh, very, very encouraging that all the time there is somebody there to tell you that, no, you can't do it. The first time I'm asked to do six rounds of the parade ground, I mean, I thought I'm going to faint because, I mean, I had never done any kind of running and my stomach would churn and I would throw, feel like throwing up. But very soon we started doing everything. I was doing horse riding. I was doing firing, I was doing uh, uh, motor driving, and plus all the Indo uh, classes of law, forensic medicine, forensic science, investigation, murder, dacoity, any kind of case, you name it, and we were doing. Now, with all that, when you come to Bihar, it was really very shocking when the DG felt that time there used to be IGs who said that he has to look for the uh, Kiran Bedi's file and then he will decide what to do with me. But I would like to tell you about the role of mentors. You yep. know, people would have talked about this, but it is very, very important. Whether you are a lady or a man or a gentleman, you have to have mentors. And we should not be shy about that. We should uh, take it up as, a, as part of our professional uh, uh, career. And uh, it is important to have good mentors. And also you listen to them. Sometimes they may not give you the right advice. That is for you to decide. But the role of the mentor in my life, I think is very important. And uh, when I joined the, when I was finally posted as uh, DIG, uh, at, under the DIG Patna, Mr. LV Singh, I still rate him as a very good mentor because he was a very, very hard taskmaster. He did not distinguish at that time, like the IG that, oh, you're a lady and why should I teach you? And everything. From day one, he said, 
now get to do this get to do that on sundays he would ask me to go for inspections with him my parents said what is this even on a sunday you have to go for a, a program and uh, anywhere he went we was uh, i was supposed to go along with him and i had to be up to date with what he was going to ask me some while he is doing an inspection of a police station say we are all in a police station suddenly he'll ask me what do you think this section of law whether this is the law which should apply to this case you know so you had to be on your toes with him and one very important uh, lesson he taught me i think on leadership which uh, would be nice for your uh people to for, for your readers to listen to uh, you know he asked me to do an inquiry and uh, i did an inquiry it was against one of the officers in charge of a police station about some land dispute a typical case you know between uh, two groups of people dis, uh, fighting for the rights to the land so i said yes this one said this this one has said this this is what has happened and i thought that i had done a very thorough job gone to the spot and made the inquiry and submitted it to him next day he calls me and he says that you have to do the inquiry again i felt so embarrassed and humiliated by his being told to do the inquiry again and that was an important lesson he told me he says that look you are an ips officer you are supposed to lead you have to say who is right and wrong within an inquiry you have just said this is this is this is this is what has happened you are expected to tell me which litigant was right and the role of the officer in charge you have not commented whether he was right in being with one group and not on the other please take it back and go through this again and come back to me so that was very uh, embarrassing for me to go back but i have never forgotten that lesson that lesson was so important for me and then the second lesson which he taught me and i keep telling everybody about it even now when i go to talk to colleges and school he said the chair is never important the person who occupies that chair is important so these two things i have always followed and uh, remembered and i remember him always for these two lessons that he was a very good mentor and then when i went uh, through my career there were other mentors who were equally good but these two things you know at that time when i was just getting into the service proved to be very important for me when we love what you said about mentors essentially your network capital we started with the piece of uh, making mentorship accessible for every person on the planet and in my own life uh, i have found that the role of mentors like pramas um, have been transformational in shaping big career decisions life decisions uh, these are the same mentors um, who helped me so quickly trying to celebrate it uh, you know things like my wedding etc and um, everybody does not get uh, get access to this women unfortunately do not get enough sponsorship and enough mentorship and now through your book you enabled mentorship through storytelling and case studies for thousands of readers who will get access to it Uh, was that a goal when you wrote the book how might i share my story so that others start telling theirs how might my story inspire others to navigate tricky situations i think that uh, would have been my thought i, I think that would have been my thought that uh, what i went through to achieve something let others also know from this i think that thought was there 
And uh, throughout my book, uh, you asked me one question, which I don't think uh, I answered uh, in so much details. It is a fact that we, I didn't have a role model when I started my career. So <clears throat> as an IPS officer, when you arrive, you have to take charge. At that point, you at that point of time, I can't ring up LV Singh and ask him what is that I should do or something. If you have a good boss, like I had one in Bokaro when I joined and Mr. Vayan Shivasta was there, he told me that, look, this is these are the problems of the town. This is what you have to solve. This is what you want, I want you to do. So at that time, when you are taking charge of a district for the first time, if somebody guides you that these are the things you have to do, you it is a good uh, thing to follow. But most of the time, you have no role model. And this story, which I have shared in great detail, is the story of uh, the Sikh riots which took place during my tenure. I was on a holiday when Mrs. Uh, Gandhi was assassinated, and there were riots in my town. So I, there was, it was no internet, no TV, nothing. There was only radio. I didn't know, and I boarded the train, and I arrived, and I was saw that the whole town was devastated, and all kinds of things had happened. Now that that point of time. Things are happening all around me. On the personal level, my children and I have just arrived home and the things have to be unpacked. They have to be taken care of after two nights of traveling. The, the riots have happened. The DIG is still uh, recovering people, getting people to safer places, putting them in a school that which he had opened as a refugee camp. But I am required to be immediately at the camp because you know we need to start looking after these families who are there uh, FIR had start need to be reg registered. There were dead bodies. Post mortem has to be done. Families have been missing, kidnapped children. Nobody knows where they are. They have to be recovered. Properties recovered, and all the officers, youngsters who were my officers in charges of police stations, clueless. They have no idea what they have to do. So at that time, there is no role model. There is nobody whom you can turn to. You are the in charge of the district. The poor DIG has been holding the fort for the last two days. He needs to go home and at least have uh, some rest and recuperation. He tells me that, Manjri, now you have come. Please take charge. And then I go. And then the emotional part of this whole thing. When I arrived there, I thought that, you know, there's this school in which all the families have been evacuated and brought. So then the emotional part is that uh, women cling to me, the men and the children cling to me and they start saying, why did you leave us and go? Why did you leave us and go? Because you went, these things happened to me. I mean, this is, a, this is an emotion I've still get used to get haunted by it, that people who've lost husband, children, family members are clinging to me and saying, that because you went, this happened to me. Why did you go? I'm so glad you've come. Help us do this. So at that time, you have to take the decision and decide what is it that you need to do. First, you have to succor them, give them that, yes, I have come. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do make sure that everything is done. Wherever the family, you have to prioritize. The FIRs have to get registered because you know already two days have passed. You cannot let the uh, FIRs not be done. 69 people were killed in those uh, uh, riots in Bokaro. We were, I think we were the fourth highest or something. So at that time, it is just your training, your mental makeup, I'm sure other people must be collapsing, 
but i think the way i was brought up the way in my family they were uh, we were always doing multitasking seeing my father doing so many things together i started doing a lot of things simultaneously and took charge of a situation and this is true of many ips officers women and they could be also in the corporate sector that you are the first person to be posted there then you have to chart a life for yourself and decide what is it that you should move ahead with i mean a case study should be written about it again thanks so much for talking to us about uh, the 1984 riots and so forth do you um would you say that that was the most difficult period of your professional life or the most challenging period of your uh, professional journey there were two or three uh, that uh, was challenging no doubt because uh, uh, there was so much to do and uh, many months uh, later a court of inquiry was ordered into the riots earlier the riots were to be inquired into that is the rangnath mishra commission of inquiry to inquire into the riots in delhi and kanpur but then bokaro and some other places were also added it was a tough uh, call but again i felt that uh, i have a very strong value system i don't like to hide things because you know in the police we tend to do these kind of things fudge figures hide the figures uh, and my approach has always been that we are first human beings we must show a humaneness to dealing with cases and at the same time we should be correct i have always believed that a lot of things will fall into places if we are always correct and uh, follow things uh, in the right manner one small story i have so many stories but i you have time i'll just tell you one of the families uh, lost both their parents and there were five children reading from 2 years to 16 years and there was a girl who was 18 years old and she was in amritsar or chandigarh this guy was a very well to do businessman you know six were traditionally uh, good business people in the bokaro steel city so uh, he had been killed he and his wife had been killed and uh, it was a very sad incident there were nobody to take care of those children you know even to provide milk is my job get milk to them get them food where who is looking after them you know there are five children so all this is my job at the police station while i'm recording an fir i'm also making sure that people have to be arrested immediately so i'm telling the district magistrate don't lift curfew let the curfew be there so that people don't come out and when my fir is recorded i know who are the criminals and i can sort of get them there so then uh, there was nothing i said we found a small key in a locker there and i took this eldest girl with me and we went around all the banks in the city and one punjab national bank said that yes this is the key to my locker i have a locker i said did you know so and so yes i have I, these people's locker is in my basement but you can't open the locker i said but where will they get money nothing is available so he says if you give an undertaking that it is being that if anything happens you will take uh, responsibility i'll let you open now this was something very irregular and illegal but i didn't bat an eyelid i wrote that letter and i said that please open the locker we found lot of cash passbooks jewelry and you know it was a starting point for that family so what i feel is that if you work with honesty and uh, values other people also come and help you so that does make a difference and i think in my career this was a very important uh, factor
talk to us about difficult decisions. When I read your book, when I hear your talks, a question I want to ask is how does empathy scale? Because how can you really be empathetic towards a billion people? It's a, it's a hard challenge. You have to make choices. You have to figure out what to prioritize. We would love some advice or case studies that you have on decision-making, how you had to prioritize one good over the other, or how, what is the difficulty of being good as a police officer in India? So there is this two cases which come to my mind is, one of the cases was when I was a young ASP, still in a subdivision. And one morning I got this news that uh, a body is being taken to the river front, Son River, if you are familiar with Bihar. And a, bo a dead body of a girl is being taken there to cremate her, to dispose her of. And she has been probably killed. So I just put on my uniform, rushed to the police station and said on the wireless to the officer in charge, please go and stop that body. And it should not be disposed of till I come. So when we came, when I arrived there, the body had been seized and brought to the police station. It was a young girl. It was obvious that she had been burned. But, you know, the family will always say the in-laws. She had been burned in the in-laws family. And there was this story that uh, she had been murdered for dowry. Now, how to register an FIR? Because the family had fled. When the police caught them going with the body, the whole family which was going to uh, cremate her had fled away. So then I found that she was from another district and I sent a posse of policemen to call the parents. And at my initiative, we got a postmortem done. We seized letters from the parents. They were very grateful that the FIR was registered. We uh, got the postmortem reports and the parents were really grateful to us. And we said, we'll arrest these people, put them behind bars. You know, I mean, I'm still an ASP. So it's very important to me that this case should be pursued and officer in charge should not be bought over or go on the side of the accused, which Officers in charge, you know, who did not, would not take me seriously, would behave. They said, Madam, ye kya ho boy? why are you doing this? So I said, no, you do this. This case has to be pursued like this. Now, Utkarsh, you will be shocked that after a month or so, I was at the police station on some other case. And then I see these old parents there holding their hands and sitting, standing there. And then I said, what happened? We are pursuing the case, but is there something wrong? He says, no, no, there's nothing wrong, but uh, we have come to you for something else. And then they say that we want you to withdraw the case. So I'm now shocked of my bits. Why do you want to withdraw the case? This case is, we will pursue this case. And then he says, no, they have agreed to marry my second daughter. They have agreed to marry my second daughter to that son-in-law. At that point of time, Utkarsh, I really felt like tearing off my badges and the IPS and everything. I said, what is this status? What is this that we are working for in India? And this may be true even now. This may be happening even now. But this is the way it was. This is the way uh, things were in those days. And I only hope that... Uh, things would have uh, improved over a period of time. And uh, we don't still have these kind of uh, cases in our uh, police stations. Really, it was very, very tough. And then uh, there was the case of a woman ringing me up and telling me that uh, in, when I was SP Bokaro, 
uh, I would like to add here that uh, prior to this uh, case, these kind of cases, you would have heard of women being burned for dowry, etc. And then Mrs. Gandhi brought in a very, very strong uh, um, amendment to the law, which is called the, uh, the uh, Section 498A of the IPC. Now, this section of law, I think, was brought in sometime in 83 and all. And it said that if a woman has been tortured and she somebody alleges, earlier it was that the woman has to come and report the FIR. And now here she said that anybody, the brother, father, anybody can come and say that uh, uh, this my daughter, my sister is being tortured or anything is happening to her. So this 498A made dowry deaths, etc., non-compoundable, non-bailable, and a cognizable case. So, you know, we could arrest anybody who was torturing a girl if we had an FIR. So in this particular case, I sent the DSP. There was this woman who rings me up on the telephone and says that my they are torturing me and they have uh, put my two-year-old daughter in hot water in a bucket. So it was a holiday. I sent the DSP. I said, ja ke dekho kya ho hai. Go, go and see what is happening and please uh, uh, arrest anybody who's behaving like this. So this DSP is a very straight guy. He went and within minutes, he came back and he said that I've arrested the husband. He was there and uh, the in-laws were missing. But the child, this two-year-old child had patches all over her body, these red patches, because he had actually put her in hot water. Now this case I'm pursuing... And it so happened that this uh, family was from the same community as me. So the entire community, the caste group in that place got after me. This started saying that, oh, why are you pursuing this case? It belongs to your caste. You should be uh, at least sympathetic. I said, where is the question of being sympathetic? And then so much so, my bosses who were sitting in Patna, one of them had the guts, I would say, to tell me on the phone and to tell others that, you know, she's a woman and she's gone through so much. That is why she's following this case. Now, can you tell me at that point of time to say something like this? I don't know whether I should have been resentful. I just gave it up. I said, forget it. I'm going to do what I have to do. So these kind of cases and this kind of behavior from people was very uh, common in those days. And I think this section of law 498A has made a lot of difference. But here I would like to give a message to the women who women in India that please do not misuse this section of law. It started getting misused by women in the sense that when they were unhappy, they not only booked the parents or the in-laws or the husbands, they booked everybody in that family, the children and two-year-old. And then the Supreme Court came down heavily and said that now it should not be automatically arrest, automatically non-bailable and all. And then the Supreme Court started saying that the, there should be an inquiry before the arrests are made. So sometimes women... Uh, become spoil sports or uh, as you say that uh, they spoil this uh, section of law which is so powerful so i feel that uh, women should also need to be fair fair to everybody and not only uh, to themselves there might be other situations in which women want to break a marriage but don't put always the blame on somebody else be uh, strong enough to say that uh, it, it is your decision that you want to break it off uh, I really appreciate your uh, thoughts on that. Um, I'm pretty sure a lot of women will have uh, comments and questions once they read your book. 
and I'm sure they'll reach out to you hopefully through this podcast. Um, tell us, Manjriti, about uh, the importance of getting big decisions right. You gave us two case studies about how you went about taking decisions in, in murky territory when the context was, was difficult. As you rose up the ranks, you got a lot of power. You were navigating, doing really well. Um, that means your role also changed from, say, the time you were an ASP to the time when you have like almost unquestionable power. Um, then you need to get big decisions right. How did you train yourself to do that? How does one become a better decision maker, especially because your decision impacts the lives of thousands of people directly? So I can tell you two um, examples. I will tell you that uh, our decisions do impact people. I have talked about the riots. I have talked about so many other things. I would have liked to talk about the Bhagalpur blindings, but uh, that I was not the decision maker there. We investigated the cases and put everything on record, but we were saying things against the police force because they had acted wrongly and blinded so many people. But uh, one incident, uh, one uh, thing I would like to share you about the status of widows and there our decision making. You know, uh, we have, uh, I won't say in the police, we have large numbers, but fairly large numbers of people, of the men dying in harness, dying in a terrorist uh, case or a Naxalite case, or while they are into some uh, operations. And, you know, sometimes you will have in the, in the Jharkhand chapters, I have shared that when we had just gone in the Naxalite uh, operations, how about 39 people were killed on one day and we had to lift these 39 bodies and deal with this group. So uh, sometimes I feel that a woman here makes a lot of difference. Very often the men who die are still leaving behind young wives, young uh, brothers or children or whatever. And the families, uh, the father, mother are also uh, old and they have lost the breadwinner and all. There you need to take a very, very uh, balanced view of things. So one of my main uh, criteria which I have followed, whether I was in the state or anywhere else, is to convince the families to allow the young widow to work. I th always thought that a young girl in India has a lot of security if she has a job. So what happens is that when a man has been killed, the parents don't want to talk about that service. They say, no, we've had enough. We don't want to uh, let my family again join the service where my son was martyred. The widow is so young. She might be less than 30 years old because or 22, 25. She doesn't know how to take a decision, but she's uh, fainting, she's uh, uh, crying, she's holding on to my feet, saying that save my life. But uh, what do you say to her? So then you have to calm her down, sit down with her, and away from the in laws who want to take her away, be protective towards her, and you know, let her stay in the village you have to take her away separately and convince her that you must take up the job. And I thought that this uh, is a very uh, 
uh, a strong feeling which I would have that I must save this uh, girl and I must do something to her to secure her future because the government is always ready to give a job to this girl and is also ready to give the compensation to her. So my, my idea was always to give the job to the lady, the compensation to be shared with the family and looked after by the parents, but take things forward and not let her be on the street because you know how it is in India. So this was uh, one thing. The other thing which I feel that uh, has, uh, you know, taking bigger decisions and higher decisions when you become senior, I would talk to you about getting women recruited in the police. So right. I'm an IPS officer. I have taken the civil services, but uh, now I'm at a very senior position where I see that um, uh, we need to recruit more women for say in the IP in the CISF when I was working I was very now very senior I was IG but uh, and I could see that uh, more and more women were working in the public sector undertakings and the CISF was getting deployed at the metro at the airports everywhere and none of these places they could function without the women contingent but what would our uh, bosses say or what would our uh, uh, middle rank people say no 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 sir don't recruit women where will we keep them it is such a nuisance sir. we don't have any wherewithal to keep women in our barracks or in the place of duty and there are all kinds of problems will happen and then to convince the dg that no this is the need of the hour you have to recruit women and how can they be recruited and i would say that if i can be trained by the men they will also be trained by the men. Let them be recruited. You will need them. And look at it today. I think about 15 years have passed since uh, the women started getting recruited. And now every force is recruiting. And I went to Jharkhand, the same story there. We didn't have any women police. There were Naxalite women. They have to be escorted. They have to be arrested. The Supreme Court says that they must be arrested and escorted and kept in a safe place by women constables. Where are the women constables? And the state is uh, uh, facing this Naxalite problem. Then again, to convince the DG, so please recruit women. Please get them there. Get a women's battalion. And today, women battalion is now the done thing. But those days, it was like banging your head against the wall. And still persisting. And congratulations to your grit that uh, yes. you Absolutely. made a societal shift in uh, in this mission. And I'd like to add one more thing for women here is that when you reach the higher positions, please don't wait for always directions to come to you. That you must do this or you must do that and only that much you will do. There are people like that, I'm sure, in the men also. When you are in a position to take decisions, take decisions for the force, for the entire organization, which you think will help the organization whether it is managing change or whether it is for taking the force forward or giving promotional avenues, think always in terms of impacting and taking things forward rather than the status quo, that you are also a cog in the wheel and that is the way it should be. I think that is another message I want to give to women and to women leadership. They should take the leaderships uh, very uh, um, effectively and make things move in the organization. Right. We're coming towards the close of the discussion. I want to ask you a couple of things before uh, you carry on with the rest of your day. One was, uh, 
when have you felt most at peace with yourself professionally or i didn't i don't want to use the word proud because proud has a negative connotation at times but when do you, when did you really feel that you've made a mark that you can you know peacefully retire from the forces now i think the five this was you know you can't say that it happened at the end of my career but uh, the five years i spent at the national police academy gave me a huge huge sense of satisfaction and that i think has uh, uh, really uh, helped me to do so much more after uh, even after my retirement that i've been able to do i mean i've retired for now 12 years and i'm still continuing with the same speed i have not really retired and put my uniform away of course but i still work but my days at npa when i was going to npa it was unheard of for people from bihar to go outside people told my parents you have two ips officers in your family and you are allowing them to go to hyderabad there was no connectivity between patna and hyderabad there was only a train connectivity and people didn't want me to go and similarly in the police force people thought that i was very foolish that we were going to hyderabad and that into training you know training is always looked down upon when you are a dig or you are an sp and you were doing well then why are you going to the police academy but you know we thought that uh, to give stability to the family because often we would be posted separately i felt that uh, for the sake of the children and for leading a proper family life they were growing up it's better to be all together in one place now these five batches of ips officers whom we trained with whom we interacted and whom we impacted that really has stood me in great uh, stead and uh, i have written very uh, very um, uh, a uh, very detailed way how many careers we impacted uh, there was an officer who wanted to resign because he was posted to kashmir there was somebody who was not going to wanting to go to nagaland saying that take my resignation letter and i kept his resignation letter in my drawer till he was uh, i could convince him that this is a service and today this guy is working with the un so there were these thing uh, uh, there were these uh, interactions with the ips officers and very involved with their training which i think has uh, uh, been a matter of huge satisfaction to me that today when ips officers who are reading my books one guy has written a book himself and he writes to me that i have put this character as you your character is this character in my book because i have always admired you i couldn't believe it I you know i know who you're talking about and we he's a network capital community member and okay. we post him i think it is the person but uh, maybe yeah i don't know so <laughs> there are people writing these letters to me so i feel that yes and everybody saying that i am going to read the book how much it impacted me how much you made a difference to my career so these things i think were really the benefits or what i would say the the big takeaways from my service yes i did provide a lot of succor to people but i'm sure many many more people would have done but this particular aspect of impacting about 500 officers in the country and today i'm proud to say that not only in delhi in the paramilitary forces but all around the country the dgs are the guys who have been trained by us and they acknowledge it they tell me that ma'am 
today I have taken over as DG solely because of you. Can you imagine how heartening it is? It is, as you say, with your mentors and with your uh, relationship with my brother or whatever, how it impacts you every time. It is really very, very satisfying. I mean, I think that's how institutions get built. And today when trusted institutions at a global level are at an all-time low, the role of people like you in enabling strong institutions through mentorship, training, skill development, career development, are the way I think um, countries and cities and nations, uh, nation states will get through. Thanks again for sharing your story. Um, we did host another IPS, a much junior officer uh, than you, on Network Capital. And I think indirectly he mentioned you. Um, I think I'll, I'm going to send you his recording, uh, you his recording, and in your recording, maybe dots can connect even further from that. Just uh, towards the very end, um, how much of your career has been a function of luck? How much of it has been hard work? And how much of it has been serendipity? I'm not looking for exact percentages, but has there been any role of luck in your life? I don't think I have uh, had luck in my life, but I don't know how to interpret it. When I was working in Bokaro and I was uh, having such a tough time getting, you, you can interpret it for me, whether you call it luck or that, uh, I was in Bokaro and I didn't know how long, how things would shape after I've done and district after so much of uh, anguish of not being posted in a field and all my batchmates being in the field. And I did well in Bokaro and I was waiting for my next posting three years were being open, were being, were getting over. And then suddenly being picked up by Mr. Julius Ribeiro, whom I did not know. I didn't even know there was a person existing like this. And he pick, uh, rings up and says that they, uh, he has, uh, I'm being told that he has picked me up from the National Police Academy on the basis of my ACR. And then I, my husband immediately says that we should go because the phone call came to him and we decided to go there. And then I think that from NPA onwards, I never looked back. I never looked back in my career. The first few five, six years, I really struggled every time to say that I want a field. I have done this training, please put me in a field and this always being pushed back, pushed back. But Bocaro made my career and uh, Mr. Julio Ribeiro picking me up has been, uh, I did not know what, maybe it was luck. Or he says it was because of my ACR. He said he's written in my, uh, in the commentary for the book that he had asked Kiran Bedi and she refused to go to the training academy. Uh, many people, as I said, think that training is what job, there's not a job for police officers. So she had refused and he picked me up. And then from there, I never looked back because then, you know, the canvas where I was operating or where I'm working is spread throughout the country. There are people coming from all over country for the IPS officers training, talking to them, guiding them, mentoring them. So the whole new vista opened for me. And there also we had very good mentors to guide us because we were never trained to be teachers. We were trained to be police officers. And suddenly you are a faculty member. You have to teach in the class. You have to counsel an IPS officer. You have to mentor them. So I really don't know whether uh, I should call it luck or whether I should call it hard work, maybe because of my hard work and getting picked up 
because after that utkarsh i never ever asked for a job i was always called whether if you'll see my book mr kem singh ringing me up and saying come to the cisf or somebody saying that uh, this story that a peacock is dancing in the jungle who is going to see you there and he asked me come work in delhi all this was happening to me so i think it was a combination of hard work and luck i call that luck surface area in my book basically how do some people get how do some people get lucky it doesn't usually happen randomly uh, it happens oh. when you work uh, consistently for a period of time and uh, then our work speaks for us our work portfolio becomes the way new opportunities come to us so in a way i think the way to become lucky yes, I is think not you're to right. wait for luck yes you don't wait sitting ki that luck will come my way i yeah. think you put it very well i think you put it very well and even after i retired utkarsh people kept asking me what would you do what would you do and uh, what are you planning to do because still there were very few retired women isn't it yeah. the same way as they were very qualified so i always said that i'm not going to work in the government i look for something else i look for not that that i was dissatisfied with the government i had had a very good career but uh, because i felt that enough of the um, uh, the government sector let me try and one or two of my dgs told me that yes you have a good chance you should look for something but again it so happened that mr ribero who had picked me up called calls me one day and he says he has a job for me another person dr r k raghavan who was the director cbi who again had not met met ever calls me and he says that i have a job for you and i found that i had three or four job offers just after retirement within two three months and of course my brother always said that you should work you should not just stay at home so uh, again you know i think it must have been luck and also as you say because of your reputation uh, one person said we were waiting for you we were waiting for you to retire and look for you to do a job and i still have job offers and i wonder how long it will go on which is very nice for me and you know this uh, particular discussion will reach out to 150000 200000 people who knows somebody somewhere in the world uh, might have get another really interesting opportunity for you i have one more topic very close to my heart which is would be very concerning you all uh, which would be of good interest to your uh, viewers also also in the corporate sector is this issue of sexual harassment at workplace please uh, please do uh, share your thoughts on it and how can people design workplaces and workplace policies uh, which are thoughtful and not yes easy? yes so when i was retiring or when i was still in service the visakha guidelines had come the law had not come so it is only after my retirement that the law came but while i was in service and uh, towards the end this vishakha guidelines itself was like a law because it was passed by the supreme court and we were applying that law so that law was a huge thing because in the ips or in these hierarchical jobs you are working under a very very tight hierarchy and when women are also recruited we have these men saying that Uh, we don't want women and how will we look after them and where will they stay and all and there are these aspirational women who want to become 
officers in charge. They want to do things in the field. They want to be posted in the border. They, they are not shy of being on the, uh, on the Pakistan border and being shelled at. They want to go there and experience that. So this, uh, the only thing I want to say is that this is again a very, very uh, good law which has come, but there is a caveat. It should not be misused. It should never be misused. And the government today in India is very heavily uh, in favor of this law. If any woman reports today that somebody has misbehaved with her, they will send that person home. And uh, I have uh, two cases I would like to relate in a short while to see tell you the two contrasts. There is this young uh, lady doctor, she is divorced, but a very efficient doctor. She says that her DIG was misbehaving with her and, and she filed a petition that uh, this is what has happened. So she files a complaint. So I do not work in that organization, but I'm senior enough to inquire. So government of India says that Mrs. Manjri Charuhar to inquire and I start the inquiry. Now there is no eyewitness to this case. And she says that whenever I went to his office, he would always call me and show my, his photograph and say that, look how good looking I am. Why don't you sometimes visit me? So uh, she would always feel very humiliated. And one day she actually, he said that, uh, I would like you to really come to my home in the evening or something. Then now, again, there is no witness. It is her word against that guy. Because he's a DIG, there is no witness who would like to say anything against this DIG. Every witness is in favor of the DIG. He's a very good person. The only thing good about this girl was that everybody praised her work, that she's a very good worker. She's very disciplined. She's always available on the campus because she was the only lady doctor. It was a challenge. I just did not know how to deal with this case. And I said, why would she bring out this uh, allegation unless something had happened? So I asked her orderlies. I asked the driver. So driver said that when madam came out of that uh, room, she was in tears. When she came into the Jeep to go home, she was in tears. And then this uh, orderly said that uh, her house uh, person said that she was very depressed and she was crying and all for a couple of days, but then she continued her work. She said that uh, she had shared all this with her doctor who was her boss. And uh, I said, let me get to that doctor. But the doctor was not available for months because he had an open heart surgery and he was on long leave. After six, seven months, I also could not reach a conclusion and I kept on and on, you know, and I don't like to give up so easily. And I was somehow felt that there must be something in this case which will take a decision. So this doctor said uh, that she didn't come to me, but she came to my wife. And my wife said that this incident had happened with her and that this lady doctor was very upset. So then what happened was that I recorded this and the daily, and this DIG was sent home. He was compulsorily retired. So this is a case which is a genuine case. And mm. this is, uh, every woman today should be strong enough to face it. I say that no woman today should take any nonsense from anybody, whether it is showing photograph or asking you to come on the telephone and make sweet talk or anything like this. I do not subscribe that women should be think twice before coming to the uh, reporting a case like that. They should be bold, a law has come and they should fully utilize uh, this law. The second case which I want to show is the contrast where 
a woman you know uh, was uh, in the uh, she was a lady ladies inspector so the the head of that office a command uh, a deputy commandant not the sp rank but a little lower rank uh he told her to vacate the quarters because in the police we have very very limited quarters not everybody is given accommodation because some people have to live in barracks because whenever there is an emergency people should be called so there are very limited uh, quarters and the more senior you become you become entitled and everybody is waiting to get quarters because they want to live with the family get their children admitted now this woman's husband was also a police officer and he had been transferred and he had already got accommodation there but this lady would not vacate the quarter for this at her place of posting saying just being very stubborn i'll stay here so the commandant issued her memos that called for her explanation for disciplinary action and all and then she filed a case against him of sexual harassment now look at this case this is a case which is typical of women and which is typical of the way we handle these kind of cases senior officers so i gave the case to a lady because a lady member has to inquire now this lady officer who's a very efficient officer took the case and did not do any inquiry did no witnesses nothing and then she says that uh, this man is guilty and he should be punished the commandant is the deputy commandant is guilty he should be punished hmm. now everybody knows that this commandant had not this deputy commandant was only following the rule because he had given memos and he was saying i have done this but this lady did not examine anything but i called her i said why did you not examine witnesses why haven't you not brought all these things on record Just look at her answer she says ma'am i am in the service i want didn't want to go against a lady i didn't want to go against a lady officer now she has a point she doesn't want to go against a lady officer but this command this deputy commandant his promotion is affected his case cannot be put up for promotion because he has a case against him and his family can you imagine the embarrassment to his family his wife is facing all this in the campus uh, she is isolated the children cannot go to school i mean think of it from a false case for the husband now this is such a complicated case finally nobody has the guts to go to the dg and tell him what to do i'm and i'm the i'm still third in the rank in the hierarchy i'm still an ig the dig comes to me and says madam only you can sort out this problem please give us a direction uh, this deputy commandant's uh, career is going to be finished if you don't look at this case so then i just did not look for witnesses i said call all the records i called all the records where the commandant had been telling her to vacate 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 she had filed cases in the court against him called all the court records and put everything in perspective and then said that he is not guilty in fact a disciplinary action to be should be taken against this lady for behaving like this and that is how we brought this now i want to give this message that please if you have been harassed and you are sexually being molested please do not take it lying down at the same time do not file a false case because you have been denied a promotion or you have been denied a job or you have been denied an increment because you want to take it out on somebody this is also wrong so these two things one has a woman officer has a big uh, uh, very big uh, responsibility and uh, 
I feel that if you misuse these kind of things for 98A or this prevention of sexual harassment, you are really affecting a large women whose integration into a service or their integration into a workforce becomes equally difficult. You know, I have heard DGs saying, oh, I keep my door open when I call a lady officer. It uh, really angers me. I said, because you are weak, you are not opening, you're keeping a door open. And how does the girl feel when she tells me that, ma'am, I went to meet the DG and he kept the door open. Is this the way to handle a thing? You should be bold enough that you handle this case, you listen to this lady officer, whatever she's saying. She has any other, it's not a grievance about sexual harassment. She's coming to talk about the force or anything. And he says that I keep the door open because... Uh, I am scared of this, uh, of a woman coming into my room. So these are absolutely wrong things, wrong uh, attitudes. So just um, before we conclude, so what <laughs> should institutions do? What uh, should, uh, should they take precautionary measures? Should there be surveillance all the time so that false cases don't become the norm or true cases are not put in the category of false cases? What should be the way forward? If you can put CCTV cameras and you can do a surveillance, there is no harm. There is no harm in doing that. It should be done by every means. In the police, you know, we have a system of orderly room. If there is a minor uh, aberration, you have done something wrong, uh, you can be hauled up by the SP in an orderly room, it's called, and he hears and gives you a summary punishment. This is the done thing. You've overstayed leave or you have been indisciplined or something. So it's not a big thing. It's a disciplinary matter. Therefore. So there also the commandant will say, I keep a woman there all the time as if it's a very big issue. But yes, in isolated places when people are working in camps and they are very far away, surveillance and uh, the CCTV camera can help. But today, if you know that uh, any x-ray of a woman by a male doctor, there has to be a woman attendant inside. If there is any examination by a male person of a woman, there has to be a woman inside. So I say, let us take it like that. If uh, there is some conversation going to take place between two people, a man and a woman, and you think that uh, this may go the wrong way and it is not so confidential, there is no harm in putting a CCTV camera or a surveillance when this is taking place. It will help. Thank you very much, Pandilji, for writing your book, for sharing your story, and for being so open uh, about the challenges, the difficulties, um, and the ethical choices that you consistently made over the years. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or any parting message that you'd like to share with our listeners from around the world? Uh, one thing I would really like to uh, say to everybody that values are very, very important today. We are forgetting values. I don't want to make it into a sermon, but values and being fair to people are extremely important extremely important and anything we do we should always think about that have i done it with a sense of value with a sense of being fair and just because i think that we all have the abilities to reach the top but it is only character that makes you stay there what a profound note to conclude thank yes. you very much once again and we look forward to having you back
to discuss other leadership principles, perhaps your next book. Okay. Thank you so much, Utkarsh, for being so patient and really thinking of doing a session with me. I hope it reaches out to all your readers. Thank you very much. I promise it will. Really appreciate it. Thank you.